You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, Resonate, we are continuing in this series called Red Letters, looking at the words that Jesus said. And as we've walked through this, there's been some profound things that have come out of just us listening to uh, our Savior, this, this the person who we profess to follow, what he says, and really asking, what does that mean and what does that look like? And so today we get into a story, and today we get into a story that I think is incredibly profound. And as I've ingested this, this has been a significant thing for me just to be able to walk through this process, and I hope it is to you, because we're looking underneath the surface and actually asking, are we people whom grace touches every part of our lives? And so I hope that you can begin to have this question that begins to lead you to a place of freedom today. So as I think about um, this, this whole process of what Jesus is saying, it goes back to an experience I had going to Hawaii. M- me and my wife uh, have made a habit. Every five years, um, we go to Hawaii for our um, anniversary. And so as we go there, we always get this you know, experience. And if you've not been to Hawaii, it's just super unique. But they use this phrase or this word, they use this word, aloha. And that idea of aloha, you know, it, it is it is fascinating. As I went there, and, and even before I got there, I thought that was just simply a greeting. Hello, goodbye, that was about it. As I began to interact with um, Hawaiian people, um, they talked about the spirit of aloha. And I began to ask, what does it mean? And um, it seems like it's hello and goodbye. And they're like, no, it's it's way more than that. It's way deeper than that. And it it has all these other like meanings to it. And in fact, um, one of the uh, people, Queen Lulukalani, and I don't know if I got that right or not, um, said this, Aloha is to learn what is not said. It's to see what cannot be seen and to know the unknowable. So that's a lot to like land when you say aloha, meaning hello, goodbye, all of this stuff to know the unknowable. What I think is really interesting is just the idea that behind this word, there's there's so much more. Well, in the Bible, we have some of those too. Uh, when I was in seminary, I remember thinking about uh, having heard the word growing up, the word shalom, which means in Hebrew, what we would translate as peace. And as I got into taking Hebrew class, and as I heard this professor begin to talk about this, it was like, he's like, there's all you have is just this tip of the iceberg. And there's this whole nother meaning to this that is wrapped up into completeness, into wholeness. And this word we use for peace is something that is, is very, very complex, nuanced, and significant and deep. And so as we think about um, really what this looks like. And as we ask the word, are we experiencing peace in this moment? Uh, again, we have this, this chaos of the world around us asking, are we experiencing the kind of peace that Jesus promises? So Jesus tells us, hey, in the world, you're going to have troubles, but I've overcome the world. I've come to bring you peace. And so what does that mean to you? What does that feel like to you? When, when you think about having peace, what does that mean? Is that a sense of like being able to take a deep breath and, and exhaling it and, and that moment and being able to have that sense of um, relief that comes from that? I think one of the things that uh, really, as we look to this, is increasingly desiring for us to be able to say, I want to live a life of peace. In fact, I looked up the word 
um, that we might be able to say this modernized version of it called mindfulness, like this process of discovering peace. And since 2004, the word mindfulness has, in terms of online searches, has dramatically increased, like by a thousand percent. And so what we begin to see is like there's a sense of us being able to say, hey, I, there's an experience. There's something that I'm, I'm longing for. There's something that I want to experience that has this sense of being able to say, there's this, there's this peace and, it, and it's deep and it's abiding and it's, and it's something that we can, they can chase after. And ultimately, Jesus says, we can, we can experience it. And so I want to look at a story today that really defines these two different um, people and how they interact with Jesus, and to be able to figure out what which one of them has peace and one of the which one of them is left without peace. Uh, and I think that we'll find that as we look closer, Jesus flips the script on really what it means for us to know how to experience peace in His presence. And so we're going to go into um, into Luke seven, and in Luke seven there is a story. Um, and it's going to be somewhat significant. So I'm going to read a few verses for us. And I want to press into this story because I think this narrative is something that you should hear Jesus um, proclaim. And we should begin to internalize what Jesus says to this woman and ask, is this applying to us? It says this in verse 36 of chapter 7 in the Gospel of Luke. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from a city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. I think this is the most profound thing as we think about Jesus who knows our thoughts. And I just think about this, like Jesus, who if he's on earth, knew the thoughts, how much more so as he is abiding in heaven, knowing our thoughts, knows what's in our hearts, knows what's in our uh, in our souls, and and what comes out and what we think. And so he says, he says this, Simon. He says to the Pharisee, "I have something to say to you." Go ahead, teacher. Simon replied. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people: five hundred pieces of silver to one, and fifty pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one who, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me any water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many. Jesus understood. Jesus fully understood who he was dealing with. 
I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little only shows little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in shalom. This is a powerful story. And Luke includes this to be able to communicate something to you and I, to be able to tell who Jesus is, to be able to proclaim to us how Jesus operates. And yet 2,000 years later, as we look at this story, this story of contrast, this story of Simon, who has worked towards holiness, who has given himself to be able to follow the law, who has ultimately lived this life where he has tried to do what is right. And this woman, this woman who has fallen into sin, who has lived an immoral life, whom by the rules and the laws, they are two different people. And yet as they encounter Jesus, one of them walks away with peace. And in this, what Jesus does is he he communicates this principle as clearly as possible. The Pharisee who believed himself to be generally righteous was, was seeking after Jesus. And then there was a sinner who makes no allusions to their self-righteousness. So there's this distance between them. There's this difference between them. And yet what we would expect Jesus to prefer, what we would expect Jesus to celebrate, what we'd expect there to be something that says, good job, Simon. Way to be the guy who who lives this righteous life. He flips it. And it seems crazy that this would work. But in this, there's a sense of what is happening that is profoundly a part of the gospel. To the Pharisee, the defining uh, factor was his perception of holiness. To be a sinner was seen as less spiritual and less acceptable. And in our current context, I think that there's some moments that we act like Simon. That, That for many of us, if you've been around the church, or even if you haven't been around the church, there's a there is a kind of a tendency for us to be able to say, I want to, um, I I don't think that God is asking me about um, my sin, but he's asking me about my holiness. And we want to live and be able to have this perception of holiness that we give to God. And instead, it might be that we need to discover that we need to be redeemed And there's a sense of us beginning to ask, what do I need then to confess? We have a tendency to put the spotlight on our own righteousness, but not put the spotlight on our consumption of grace. And could it be that Jesus cares not about our perception of righteousness, but about our consumption of grace? And that's where it begins to throw us off. So what Jesus did was not focus on the sin, 
but he began to focus on the relationship. Jesus began to say, okay, what is important in this is not necessarily what you're doing and what ends up looking like uh, sinfulness or righteousness, but your attitude towards your Savior, your posture towards redemption. And in this way, the sinful woman was actually put in a better position than Simon was. I think about how we operate and, and allowing the grace in our life to get to this most significant places. Uh, my, my parents live in Texas, and a few years ago, they bought a house. They bought a house, and as they uh, looked at this house, um, it was a great house, and it was uh, a fairly new house. And uh, as you basically went through and everything that you could see, it was great. And then one day, they found out that they had termites. Now, uh, termites are a, a typical thing in Texas, but they didn't just have termites. They had what they called subterranean termites. These are the termites that don't live in the wood and, and don't live in the walls, but they actually live underground. And they make these tunnels with like dirt and spit. <laughs> and they make these tunnels that allow them to go and, and they go every single day from eating back to their nest, nest. And there's millions of them. And you can't typically find them until it's too late. In fact, as I was researching this, most of the ways that people discover they have termites are when actually the, found, or the, the, uh, the structure begins to fail. But my parents were doing work. And as they pulled off part of the wall, they began to see something. They begin to see termite damage. And again, not just any termite damage, subterranean termite damage. Now, if you just have regular termites, what you do is you kind of just, um, you, you insert this pesticide into parts of the, the walls. And, and that pesticide begins to kind of fumigate and kill all of these. But when they live in the ground, it's a completely different thing. So they have to pull back the carpet or have to remove the tile or the flooring of some kind. And then what happens is they drill down through the foundations because they have to get to the actual nests. And they don't know exactly where those nests are. And so they go through and they, across the foundation of the house, they drill down into the foundation so they can get the pesticides all the way to the termites. And that's the only way to kill it. And it's incredibly expensive to take and have someone take up your flooring and to drill down into your foundation and to insert all of that um, stuff in there that kills them. But that's the only way to save your house. Because if you don't do that, then at some point it all comes crumbling down. And I think about the crazy expense that my parents had to pay to be able to ensure that they didn't have termites, that it felt extreme to be able to say, you're going to dig down into your foundation. You're going to drill down into this. But it was the only way that the house would actually stay standing long-term. When I think about you and me, I think about these realities that we carry with us that are similar to dealing with this termite issue. That when we think about um, the places that many of our decisions come out of, 
that much of our emotions come out of the depth of who we are. When we have this sense of our brokenness in those places, this is, this is ultimately these places deep within us where the brokenness emanates out of. And we can protect ourselves, we can wall that off. But here's the reality. As we've seen over the last two years, margin gets thinner, um, difficulties come. And what happens is this. It begins to reveal what has been hidden, that there are issues in our hearts, that there's brokenness that still resides in much of our lives. And if we don't take and apply grace to those places, to drill down into those places, then what happens is we allow those things to be managed but not healed. I think oftentimes many of us are managing our lives, applying grace to what we see, but not doing the difficult work of allowing grace to go into the depth of who we actually are. One of the things that I've I've recognized, um, even in my own life in the last nine months, is that um, is that we often don't push the redeeming power of grace deep enough into the core trauma of those we lead and of of ourselves. So every one of us has places where sin has damaged us. We all have places where either our choices or the choices of others have created narratives and lies to cause us to hide where we feel ashamed. And most of our lives, there are compartments that we manage. There are parts that we keep and we hide from other people. And this goes all the way back to the way that we interact with our Heavenly Father, even in the garden. If you go back from the very beginning, there's a moment where there's a shame moment, and then they begin to, to hide themselves, right? They begin to cover their nakedness. And that is the beginning of that separation between man and God. And that is that thing that God came to heal, that we might be so revealed to God that it would be as if we were standing naked before him. This is what grace is meant to cover. Grace is not meant to make us just a little bit better, but to make us transformed and redeemed. And in this, as we think about these aspects of the core traumas that we might have in our lives, we have to ask God to heal and replace what happens in those moments. Here's my point. Transformation isn't about hiding our sin, but exposing our sin and letting grace cover everything. Transformation is about letting God's grace cover every single thing and letting redemption heal it all. For the last 22 years that I've been doing ministry, I've seen brand new Christians and people who've been in church their entire lives. I've seen them struggle. I've seen them hold wounds, identify with godless identities. Maybe they spend hours in church, led Bible studies, memorize scripture, and yet carry with them places where the grace of God has never touched. And whenever there's grace that doesn't touch an aspect of our lives, it eventually comes to the surface. It may be obvious, it might be subtle, but it's the fruit of sin and not the spirit. And I was thinking about just how this works and how we hide things. And thinking about this just being this 
this pervasive way that oftentimes we deal with the things that we're ashamed of. I listened to a podcast, not a Christian podcast, but this guy was interviewing um, someone who had made it really big in Silicon Valley, someone who uh, worked for companies that you would know that was very high up in those companies. And um, he wrote a book, and he wrote a book, and the book was called Porn Star of Silicon Valley. And as he began to unpack this thing, what his story was, was a story of essentially having a secret. And that secret was his addiction to pornography that led to a sexual addiction. And how this addiction to pornography that led to this sexual addiction began to take over in his life. And ultimately what happened is this, as he began to run towards this thing, he began to have all the consequences of this sin begin to manifest in his life. And ultimately it comes to a breaking point. And one of those breaking points was as he begins to meet with um, someone who is just what he would call a life coach. And the first time this life coach met with him, he said uh, this, what are your secrets? And it took him three weeks after he said that to come face to face with this reality that there was a secret. And eventually he told the entire process of his addiction to pornography to, that led to this sexual addiction. And as this secret became um, revealed, he began to say, one of the processes was this, was I just began to read through Jesus's words. I don't think this person is a Christian per se, but what happened was this discovery of a compartment and then really this sense of being able to say, I have to shed light on this thing. The only way for me to experience shalom, this peace, is to be able to come face to face with what is in the dark and bring it to the light. Now, I wish I could have interacted with him to be able to say, this is not just a great thing to do for your personal peace, but here's why you do it. It's because you've already been forgiven. Because Jesus Christ came to accept you just how you are. And you can come to him completely exposed. And he died, he gave his life, not for the best version of you, but for the very worst version of you. And that's who he saved. And you don't have to take and, and have some sort of face that you put on. You don't have to protect your image in front of Jesus. All that stuff that's inside, he wants to take and redeem. And so oftentimes we live lives where we carry our trauma, where we carry our woundedness, where we carry these things and don't allow Christ to see them. But the thing is, he already sees them just like he looks into Simon's heart and he sees judgment. And then there's this woman on the ground who has nothing to lose. And who receives the peace? It is this person. So there's this sense of us being able to say, how do we really see ourself? Are we trying to protect an image of righteousness? Are we falling at the feet of Jesus and saying, what part of me have you not touched with grace? That I don't want to hide anything from you. I don't want to be this shell of a person 
that's trying to get your approval when you've given your life to save the very depth of my sin. Here's the truth, that a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. These are the words of Jesus. Now, it might be objectively true that this woman had had more sin than this man who tried to live this this life. But underneath this, here's the truth. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That none of us is righteous, not one. That perfection is the standard, and you and I both fail. So in this way, the woman and the man both stand as equals, but one of them recognizes their sin, and one of them doesn't. One of them stands in a place to receive the peace of God. One of them doesn't. So we can have all of this religious proximity. We can live these lives that have all of this desiring to to follow after Jesus, and and, and it seems like we're, we're living holy lives, and yet we can miss the very sense of the gospel in our lives. We can miss about what this is about. See, our worship is proportionate to what we allow grace to touch in our lives. So when we begin to see that there is so much that needs to be redeemed in our lives, there's so much that we shouldn't try to protect ourselves, try to to take and say, I I have to have my image look like this. But we fall at the feet of Jesus and said, I am a miserable, broken, sinful person, and I need your grace in every part. And at that place, that is the truest moment of worship in our lives where we're not just worshiping in ambiguity, we're not just worshiping in, in, in our head, but it's our whole sense of ourself that is falling down, worshiping God. This is profound for us. This woman is broken. She's humbled. She's exposed. She's completely without self-protection. She's not thinking about how she's gonna look. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. The outside and the inside are completely congruent. The truth of who she is and the perception that she's showing everything else in her life is completely aligned. And I want you to know, and I want me to know this, I want us to know that when our inside and the outside is congruent, that's where we find peace. That's when we find the acceptance. But we're not manufacturing, like the world says, we're not manufacturing a sense of being able to say, let's just move the goalpost to be able to say what's right and what's wrong. So therefore I can define everything that I'm doing as right. So that's the way that I create an incongruency between the inside and the outside. Jesus is saying this, there is a right, there is a wrong. There is a good, there's a bad. There's a truth and there are lies. I've defined those things, but here's the good news. Your inside and your outside are fused together by my grace. And so the reality is we ask, how do we let the grace of God touch the deepest places? How 
how do we allow grace to touch those places in our lives so that we might have freedom, so we can experience God's love? So instead of being filled with shame, instead of being able to walk through this and being able to say, I've had these hurts, we begin to say, I live in freedom. So in this, I think there's two things that we see oftentimes that really we hide from redemptive grace. One, we hide from redemptive grace in wounds. We we are hurt and we might have emotional trauma and we get stuck in these wounds. We get stuck in these places where we're hurt, right? These things, either we did it or someone else did it, but it begins to put us into a place where we we don't allow God's redemptive grace to get into those places of woundedness completely, fully. Whatever happened, we say God's grace covers that thing. Whether it happened in your, uh, because of your choices or the choices of others, God's grace has to heal that or the wound creates a place of shame. Number two, we can assume an identity that isn't who we are in Christ. We line ourselves up with others. We don't think we measure up in some area. And this becomes the lens by which we see ourselves. And we don't give ourselves grace. And essentially we say, yes, yes, I understand you love me. I understand that you've died for me. I understand that really you're give me identity. But actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to line myself up and compare myself to everyone else. And I'm going to trust in that And I'm going to put myself into that context. And we don't let grace heal that. We don't let our identity be formed by Christ. So here's what we do. That we might have freedom. That we might be able to experience God's love. We have to probe those places. We have to ask those questions. Where where am I experiencing shame? Where am I wounded? What part have I not allowed God to touch with his grace? It's the only pathway to transformation. Church, what are we doing if we're not allowing the depth of who we are to be redeemed by God's grace? May we be people that are asking each other these questions. May we be people that are saying, I I don't want to let you continue to live with this wound. Let's probe where Jesus needs to apply grace to. So Jesus beckons you to let healing come, not just to the reasonable places, but the places of hurt that he wants to eradicate, the places where he wants to turn shame ultimately into a place of acceptance. So might we embrace this good news? And so as we've been talking, maybe is there something that you begin to say, maybe there's a hint of a place where grace hasn't touched. There's a, there's a corner of your heart that you still want to hide. There's a secret that you haven't exposed. I just want to ask you, may you not walk another day letting that secret lurk in your heart, caring more about your image than you do about your freedom. Jesus has come so that you might be like that woman where the inside and the outside fuse together and that me, he might be able to say to you, go in peace.
May that be something that strikes the depth of who you are. And may we be as a church people who fight for each other, that we might experience the true peace of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, help us to want your freedom more than we want to protect our image. Lord, help us to be so um, profoundly desiring of your grace that we expose ourselves, Lord, that we expose the depth of who we are and the places that we're hurt and the traumas that we might have, Lord, that you might be able to touch your grace into those places, Lord. Give us the courage to do that, that we might experience your freedom in your holy name. Amen. We love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.